this hand of mine is burning red. Welcome back to Bizarre Podcast, Dogs Must Die. My name is Grant, you can call him Chip, and today we are not talking <gasps> about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Related, though. We're going to be talking a lot about it for not talking about it, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, today's topic is is a nonfiction sort of how-to book t- called Manga in Theory and Practice, The Craft of Creating Manga by one Hirohiko Araki, written originally in 2015. Yeah, this is a book I've spotted so many times at Barnes & Noble and thought, hmm, and then I never picked it up for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad... To, to have, like, a good excuse to go ahead and read this, because uh, it was more interesting than I thought it was going to be, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I was expecting something a little more dry. There's more about Araki himself and his journey to making manga than I thought there would be in here, at least. See, I'm coming from the other end, because I expected this to be way more, like, personal, way mm. more of a, a like memoir like a career memoir yeah uh but it's so so much of it is really a how-to book it's not a dry how-to book but this is yeah i mean as the subtitle says it is it really the craft is of creating manga it's not the story of jojo's is just sort of the the book that i think araki wishes he could have gotten from the library when he was a teenager yeah yeah it really does come like a lot of times when you do actually get to any personal stories of you know his journey to to making all this stuff it's usually comes da- it usually comes down to this is where i fucked up and i wish i hadn't <laughs> <laughs> i wish this book was here so i wouldn't have had to have done this no yeah i think it's it's pretty interesting and it like right away mm-hmm. it, it opens up with a couple brief paragraphs just explaining why he's doing this uh, and also yes, coming up yes. with two terms he's made up himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Golden Way. <laughs> yes, and the Royal Road, which yeah. seem interchangeable. A little bit, yeah. I'm not sure why they're separate terms, because I don't know the difference between them. So there's the Golden Way and then the Royal Road. Royal Road, I understood immediately the way he defined <laughs> it. Golden Way, I went over this paragraph a couple of times thinking, what's the difference? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What? Because there's kind of like two different definitions he gives for the Golden Way. One of them is the progress of manga as an art form, mm-hmm. which has existed invariably since long ago. But then also the Golden Way is a map on how not to fuck up. <laughs> which <laughs> is the thing that's interchangeable with the Royal Road. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The Royal Road is the good way of doing shit so you don't fuck up. And the Golden Way is sometimes it's he acts. He says it's the map to stay on the Golden, the, the Royal Road. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. They're a little intercha- interchangeable there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's not. It's really a short introduction before getting right into, hey, how should you do this shit? <laughs> One thing I think is interesting is that, like, this book is indebted to uh, the Hitchcock Truffaut interviews. Yeah. Published as the book Hitchcock slash Truffaut. Uh, interestingly, this book was published in Japan uh, a month before the Hitchcock Truffaut documentary would have its premiere at, at the Cannes fin- Film Festival. Oh, okay. But that's not particularly relevant. Uh, so, but But I just think that it is important to note that, like, yeah, if you want to learn how to make the the nuts and bolts of the manga form, 
read this mm-hmm. book. If you want to learn how stories work, watch Hitchcock Truffaut or, or yes. read Hitchcock Truffaut. Throughout this book, he definitely he, he brings up a lot of different inspirations uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of his. But he and, does, and they're it, very broad, not just in genre yeah. terms, but like uh, international terms in in uh, uh, medium terms. Yeah, and I am happy that he brings this stuff up because yeah, whenever you're doing creative stuff, regardless of what you know, medium or genre, whatever it is, it really helps to you know not just be interested in the thing you want to make. You have to be interested in shit outside of that realm too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or else you're going to be like pretty creatively stunted if you're just pulling from the th- types of things you want to make. So that dumps us right into chapter one, getting started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right before that, though, I enjoy the paragraphs whenever he acknowledges that JoJo is weird. <laughs> because there's a bit like right before the introduction or uh, getting started where is like if I were to say that JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, currently on his eighth series, is a manga of the Royal Road, a good number of people might think, "What? Isn't JoJo weird?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I just get tickled by that for some reason because it's just like he acknowledges multiple times, like, "Yeah, I make JoJo's weird on purpose." <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyways, getting started. But uh, I guess if we're putting this in context, uh, yeah, this came out in. 2015 part eight was about a third finished a a third of the way through yeah it's very vague and doesn't come up too too often but there are a couple times he talks about part seven and eight in this Mm -hmm. in ways where i'm just like oh no is that a spoiler but not really it's too vague (laughs) yes i now know the uh uh, job title of the villain of part seven (laughs) yeah and and I think a description of the first like four pages of part eight uh, yeah. uh, in in pretty good detail at one point. Yeah, but come on, come on. Mm-hmm. I I watched the trailers for part six before that aired. I I, I know way more about Stone Ocean <laughs> than anything past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chapter one does start with kind of what I was expecting. You know, talking about being sixteen and. And submitting to uh, uh, new talent competitions from the mm-hmm. big publishers. But as it goes on, it just gets immediately into like a, a manual and not a memoir. And when yeah. it's doing that, it, it's really advice more than guidance. Like, just think about this and this. Here's the problem. It's your job to find your solution. Yeah, he stresses multiple times throughout this book and is like one of the last th- things he says in the book too. Okay, here's kind of guidelines. Here's sort of like what worked for me. No idea if it'll work for anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the starting point, the the problem to be solved is the same for every manga writer, at least according to Araki's theory that mm-hmm. that this whole book is built around. You know, uh how do you hook readers how do you get them going like for all the high-mindedness of a royal road like it's very unclear how much he's talking about like artistic excellence and how much he's talking about getting picked up getting a regular paycheck and yeah rent you know yeah when he describes a royal road to me it really did feel more like how do you make something that will consistently get you picked up for work Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like how how can you make something that is by by metrics of living off of it successful? <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And and I think that those two aren't easily separated in this text. Mm-hmm. Speaks to maybe a faith in the uh, uh, taste of like the readership at large. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it has to be good or it won't survive. And something that survives, uh, uh, you know, ten years, thirty year career, they must actually be incredibly artistically worthy. Yeah, yeah. Because readers aren't stupid. Re- readers don't have bad taste. Exactly. Look at Bleach. <laughs> it's back, baby. It's, it's back. That Bleach is back, baby. Before he goes like into that advice, like literally a page after he starts talking about you know the the inception of him wanting to be a mangaka. Yeah, it's like he turned sixteen, and something that really impressed on him was uh, when Unt- Ultimate Muscle mm-hmm, started. Mm-hmm. Then or Kanikuman, I think it was called in in Japan. Oh, yeah, the soy sauce, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like ultimate muscle was a thing that made him think, oh, man, I got to get into this. And he also, like, expresses the stress he felt early on mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. so many people who got picked up and were getting successful fairly quickly with their manga were, like, 16 or or 17. And he was, like, already, like, 21 or something mm-hmm. like that. Dick Dick Von Dick isn't in the Louvre, so uh, let's that's just... true. You know what? That's true. I don't think Dick Dick, Dick Von Dick has ever been there, <laughs> or Terry Canyon, for that fact. The the first bit of advice to be a section head, to be like a paragraph head, is just make them turn the first page with an exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> These other subchapters do not have punctuation. <laughs> yes, I mean it. It really does seem like it's extremely important to have a really fucking good first page, though, because he talks about, you know, how... The first chapter is almost entirely about the first page. Yeah. You know, when you're you're sending these things into these, like, talent competitions, like, editors will... It's not even the first page. They will judge by the first panel. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. They, they can pull out a manuscript halfway out of the envelope and go, nah, and put it back in. And he's just like, you don't want that. That sucks. <laughs> So yeah, do you want to talk about uh, Poker Under Arms? Yeah. The the debut work of Hirohiko Araki? Yeah, this is a a thing I did not know about, actually. I knew about Bao, and I knew he had one or two other things before that, but that was basically it. So this is a, a Western, like a the, the American West gunslingers and gamblers story mm-hmm. uh, that was originally submitted to one of these like talent competitions and yeah. it it did not win because there was no winner it was one yes. of the like first runner-ups in a in a competition that no one actually won yeah <laughs> um and so in this book you actually do get the first couple pages of poker under arms which i thought was uh threw me f- through loop for a second just because you're reading left to right in this book and so you're getting the manga pages left to right, but each page has to be read from right to left. And I was just like, whoop. <laughs> I had to flip my mode for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there is quite a bit of... Um, and also when when you're seeing these pages, like a lot of the time there will be extra notes from Araki like overlaid on top of the pages. But yeah, he was talking about, um, you know, okay, you need to have a first page that actually grabs people so his first page, rather than being like a hero shot or anything like that, is a shot of a dude falling back in his chair, like mid-action, who has just been mm-hmm, shot mm-hmm. dead for, for cheating at cards. Yes. And 
<laughs> cards of varying sizes. Some interesting perspective here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just going, uh, uh, following uh, uh, the arc of him falling back in his chair. And two cards in particular are not, you know, what you would expect to see, but rather inset portraits of our two main characters. Yeah. So, so this story has a narrator also, which... Mm-hmm. Does it look like Orson Welles? It looks very much like Orson <laughs> the Welles. The narrator looks exactly like Orson Welles. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- th- this is like a uh, bearded up, like Muppet movie, uh, uh, wine commercial era Orson Welles. Yes. Yeah. Uh, introducing like, hey, I'm about to tell you a story of two gunmen. Like, yeah, opening up wine, sitting down, pouring himself a drink and a drink for someone else. I think that's for you, the audience. I guess so. Yeah, and so like the protagonist of of this story is like a a wanted criminal. You know, your first introduction to him is just he was getting his beard shaved at a barber shop, and he killed a bounty hunter dead, trying Mm -hmm. to ambush him during this. Which makes me think of that part three JoJo episode where uh, fucking Polnareff gets ambushed while at a barber shop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, there, there's also a bit in i think it's for a few dollars more where the man with no name is setting traps and like he sets up a dummy in a barber chair but he's actually behind the door if i'm remembering yes. that right yeah. yeah which by the way yeah this this is a western setting and he talks about rocky talks about um he chose this setting because it was basically a setting that no manga was doing there was like literally right, one right. other one that was doing that and like with these opening pages, it's he's using these opening pages to demonstrate how your first page and the few after really have to set up the what is it the the five H or W's and the one H or something like that. Yes. The yes. who, what, when, where, how, and why. Like in in the uh, sub chapters specifically about that, I love all the times where he's like, "I did all of this by doing three of them," which implied the other three just fine. Get off yes. my back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of times when he he's talking about like these kind of guidelines, and he's just like, "These are really pretty fucking important." I don't do all of them a lot of the time. <laughs> it's it's a very do as I say, not as I do book. Yeah, it it really is. Yeah, the, these first couple pages kind of establish that the the protagonist here is just you know a criminal on the lam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But such an incredible quick draw, he can kill someone sneaking up behind him while he's sitting in a chair. Yes, yep. And so yeah, it's he's really talking about through poker under arms here how you need to really try to deliberately have a very deliberate purpose for every single panel, especially at mm-hmm, the start. Mm-hmm. Because right. it's so hard to hook people, especially editors who are judging your work. And yeah, it was the first one that uh, got picked up. And it wasn't like a very enthusiastic pickup either. It was just like <laughs> his editor was just like, well, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> that spills us right into chapter two, the four major fundamentals yeah. of manga structure. This chapter, I think, is best illustrated by the illustration on page 42. Yes! Uh, Yes! Yeah. Okay. So this looks like a diagram you would see in, like, a middle school science book. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So there is a a 
broad, short cylinder. Imagine like tuna can proportions, right? Yeah. And that is labeled art. Yep. And inside that uh, uh, cylinder are four balls. There are three small balls labeled character, story, and setting. Mm -hmm. And one large ball poking out the top and overlapping the other three balls, uh, uh, sort of Venn diagram in 3D style, labeled themes. Yes. That's the whole chapter, baby. That's the whole chapter. Yeah, character story, setting, themes, four major fundamentals. And he stresses the absolute most important one. Like, he he orders them in level of importance. So characters, mm-hmm, story, mm-hmm. setting, themes. If you got good characters, you can suck at a lot else, and people will still keep reading. <laughs> and he even posits, hey, man, you can make something that has zero story if you got really good characters. They could just be farting around every single chapter if those characters are really fucking good. That's the entire slice of life genre. That's yeah. that's a whole like branch of manga and anime is is just that. Yep. And so, yeah, basically after introducing those four fundamentals, we kind of go div- have a whole chapter on each individual element there. I would love clearer definitions of some of these. Like, okay, character yeah. and setting, yeah, I get it. But story can mean a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And theme can mean like infinite things practically and there's yeah. no like even in the theme chapter if i can get ahead of myself he never pins down what exactly he means by theme yes i i noticed that as well yeah. it takes up so much of the diagram though yeah yeah what are you talking about when i i was a little puzzled too when i was looking at at that diagram because it's like okay yeah theme encompasses all of those other three things but i was just reading the reading about these things in order of importance so i thought characters would be the largest ball <laughs> but I mean, the, the diagram makes sense because you communicate your theme through your characters yeah like, it does make your, sense your characters your setting and your your story all have to illustrate the theme if it is going to be a, like if you're doing it right if you're following the royal road okay yeah yeah what do you mean what do you mean by theme <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you yeah. mean by theme yeah Okay, I shouldn't harp on this too much because my examples for why I think it's a problem are in the theme chapter. So I'll, I'll let mm-hmm. it rest for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, the, the very first thing, we're going in order of importance here again. So the next chapter is about characters. Chapter three, designing characters. Yes. Yeah. And the, the golden way to making protagonists. I love every time he gives an example of anything. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, even back in chapter one, uh, uh, I wanted to point out when he's like, titles are important. You know what has the perfect title? Jurassic Park. Yes. God, yeah. What are, <laughs> what are, he lists a couple other things, but I can't remember what they are. But yeah, Jurassic Park is the one that stands out to me, too. And that's even the one he goes into more depth on, which is like, just Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's perfect. But but his, like, examples for great character motivation to start off chapter three include collecting women's underwear or building a nice bath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he does this, like, the second paragraph is, you know, he's talking about, like, okay, characters are mega important. Some people will go as far to say that if you have characters, you have a manga. And he starts describing you know, really iconic characters without naming them and just naming, you know, qualities or, you know, what they're driven by and stuff like that. It's like, can you name who this is? Bada bing, bada boom, is Goku. Of course you know who the fuck Goku is. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next one he gives, though, I did not know, but that's because I don't know if this manga is even in English. 
Kochikame or whatever, which is like about mm-hmm, a lazy mm-hmm. policeman or whatever. Yeah. Which will come up uh, uh, several times. It, it yeah. is a it is an example that he he returns to mm-hmm. uh, for for a lot of these chapters. Something that jumped out to me is uh, uh, that a motivation must conform to like a reader's natural sense of ethics. Yeah, and I think this this is part of what really points to the royal road being the, the royal road to a commercially viable career. Like, yeah, you you are defaulting to advice for a, a shonen jump, no, knowing that particular audience. Mm-hmm. Whenever there's a cho- uh, choice in this book to go to any given audience, that is the one that he's like pointed at. Which I mean, yeah, that's his whole career, you know. Yeah. Yeah, there's some other things that make me think that way, too, especially later on when he's talking about um, story and how it has to be um, the the positive arc that he talks about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, that sounds extremely like, yeah, that has to, you're talking about making something commercially successful for Shonen Jump. Um, but yeah, it's he starts talking about, OK, when you're th- making a character, you think, what the fuck do they want to do? what makes a good motivation and all that. Um, There's a lot of, you know, lists throughout a bunch of these chapters where he's talking about, hey, you just need to go look at everyone else's work and just make big lists of motivations, settings, themes, all this stuff, just so that you can have a good reference for, like, what everyone else is doing and what's successful. (laughs) But yeah, sometimes the examples are just really funny and weird, like the collecting women's panties thing. Wasn't there something about getting women's hair, too? I what natural sense of ethics does that conform I, to? <laughs> Shonen Jump readers, man. <laughs> but uh, he, he even talks about part five in this. Like, hey, yeah. the mafia is good because they want to stop selling drugs to kids, damn it. Mm-hmm. And the cops are all really corrupt. So that that is why mafia is good guys this one time. Yeah, yes. But but also this whole thing about defining characters by their motivation really goes to explain Stroheim being a different guy after surviving Santana. Yeah. Because once his motivation is no longer study the pillar man, he can be a completely different person because motivation is the soul of a character mm-hmm. around which the rest of them are built. Yeah. Uh, all of the, the part four face turns are the same way. Yeah, totally. Like along with the motivation one of the things he really stresses is just like, hey, these fuckers better be brave. <laughs> but yeah, it's readers are going to strongly empathize with motivation motivations that they empathize with. Uh, and hey, if these characters are brave and even if things are really tough and they're always like, you know, butting their heads up against, you know, whatever their obstacle is or whatever, that will grab your readers a lot quicker. Um, and also, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, motivations... It's all basic human desires, generally. And he does have a little bit, though, where he talks about, uh, hey, there's an allure to evil guys. Look at Dio. But, like, seeing uh, uh, Araki break down every Shonen Jump hero you've ever seen into, (laughs) like, these building blocks is, like, I don't know, listening to Howard Ashman talk about (laughs) why you need which songs where in a musical. Like, the scales fall from your eyes. You just see the Matrix code. It's great. Yeah, it's, yeah, he really does break down, especially, like, yeah, Shonen Jump protagonists in, in particular down. You can tell he's looked at fucking everything a lot and thought about it pretty hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And yeah, throughout this entire thing, it really does kind of break down JoJo in a way, too, where you suddenly understand why some weird things are the way they are. And not the things that are intentionally like, here's a really crazy thing that happened, but specifically like, why do characters act like this? Why do they have mm-hmm. random face turns sometimes? <laughs> what? Why does? Why do certain ideas just get fucking dropped out of nowhere sometimes? And it's like a lot of that does, if not explicitly explained, you understand why that stuff has happened throughout JoJo uh, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. reading this. The the heroes fight alone uh, uh, section I thought mm-hmm. was curious because that doesn't describe what i think of part four or five at all and he even uses part five as an example to support it yeah i thought that was a little weird too like uh uh, their connection is not that of a leader and followers or of a brotherhood and when they fight they each stand on their own no they don't i can break (laughs) down the numbers yeah any of them fighting one-on-one or or like alone on two really rare it's it's like what baby face not even Black Sabbath, because that's Koichi's there for that. Their connection is not that of a leader and followers or of a brotherhood. What is it then? What Golden Wind did you write? Because it's not the one I watched, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was weird too. Yeah, this this is also one of the first times I think he brings up Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. comes up several times. He just really likes the the characters that Clint Eastwood would play in Westerns. All the way up to Grand Torino. Was not expecting a Grand Torino shout out in this book, but Same. maybe I should have. Yeah. But th- this whole section boils down to, hey, don't rely on others. Do it yourself. As as like an audience reaction to, to uh, uh, the not ideal uh, Shonen Jump protagonist. Yeah. Everyone's dead. Goku, you have to save us. <laughs> yes. It does seem kind of, to kind of stress that like, hey, by the end... Like, like whatever the big conflict is, by the end, it is the protagonist who solves it, which, like... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I Yes, I see that part. Like, yeah, it's always the Jojo who, who, you know, lands the killing blow. Or an ambulance. Or an ambulance, sure. <laughs> Look, that Jojo punched that guy into the ambulance. It counts. <laughs> <laughs> the difference between drawing men and women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, th- this whole bit is just him talking about like, hey, cultural values have changed. You can totally draw a tough woman these day- <laughs> these days. And it's uh, all thanks to Terminator 2. <laughs> thank you, Linda Hamilton, for being in Terminator 2. <laughs> but now we get into, like, the secret ingredient is right. The character histories. This really unlocks so much of how JoJo's works, how mm-hmm. the text talks about the characters. It all all comes down to this. So if you've ever watched or read JoJo's and thought, wow, it's like the narrator read a wiki article on this guy <laughs> and wants to tell me all about it, that's because <laughs> it's mm-hmm. exactly what happens. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Araki, before he does any drawing of a character or anything, he always makes up a character history sheet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, yeah, is kind of just a wiki article for the character. And there is an included example of such. We got a spot for their name, their age, their sex, their birthday, their blood type, where they were born, their height, their weight, all this stuff. But then, like, their history of surgeries, mm-hmm. uh, uh, their criminal record, their dreams for the future, their family relationships, their likes and dislikes, their hobbies. Are they gloomy? Are they sociable? Are they virtuous? 
Do they have pets? Do they keep plants? Mm-hmm. And, like, looking at this, it makes me wonder, like, is this sort of idea why, like, writers can be so into astrology or blood mm. type or, like, flavor profile personality stuff? Yeah. Because, like, if you leave it up to random stuff, your subconscious, like, mind won't be, like, a finger on the scale. And he even, do- he even does bring up, like, that he sometimes uses uh, pop divination. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, th- this was a, one of the things where I was just like, oh, this makes a lot of sense for for his characters. 60 facts to 60 flesh facts. out your characters. Yes. That's a lot of homework to just make up a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder I wonder when he started really employing this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in JoJo. Like was it a thing from the start? Did he really have 60 facts for guys like Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> <laughs> Big arm. He just I wrote in every single like category. Eight facts. At most. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know he doesn't say it, but I'm sure it varies depending on how important the character is. You know, but yeah, he he does speak a little bit of like you know using blood types and stuff like that to kind of determine parts mm-hmm. of characters and all of that. And then he immediately goes on to talking about hey, stands, stands, stands. And yeah, it's sometimes he thinks of the stand for a character before the character, even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can totally see, like, he just comes up with the, the ability or the power first and thinks, what type of person would be using this? What would be interesting for that? Um, right. You know, okay, they can stop time. Do they have to be muscular to stop time, as an ex- example? No, <laughs> but he absolutely fucking is. <laughs> <laughs> well then maybe the answer is yes have you <laughs> yes. ever stopped time you don't know I you guess don't know maybe i do need a lot of more muscles to stop time yeah it's it's a short section talking about stands but yeah it's basically just you know hey sometimes i make the stand first and the character second mm-hmm. uh but then here's a thing that i was just like oh the, i was waiting to see if this would come up characters can change and be erased oh you don't say <laughs> <laughs> whoa <laughs> Like yeah, you you will inevitably run into dead ends during the character history step. Uh, if you determine that a character is not going to be someone you can use, you can just make a clean fucking break. This also means the birth of a new character. Metamorphosis, huh? Yeah, and it's just like, hey, it might sound tedious to make history sheets for each and every character, but it's the thing that it's what for him at least it's what keeps him from just going through the motions. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, like, without having histories for these characters, you're going to end up getting into a rut and kind of falling into, like, a repeating pattern doing the same stuff. And then he's just like, hey, try and make, you know, do an exercise of with these history sheets and stuff by, like, trying to use yourself and friends and family as inspiration for characters. Finding ways to differentiate your characters so that they don't all feel like they have the same voice and stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you have to consider with their history and all of that, how would they speak and all of that. Um, I forget if it's here or a little bit further in, but he does really stress doing lots of research for, like, everything. Uh, Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, yeah, you can tell he does lots of research, especially when it comes to later on when he's talking about setting, where he just straight up says, like, hey, I go everywhere I want my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. to, ...to write about. One thing that jumped out to me when he talks about how to use supporting characters is mm. uh, uh, maybe you'll recognize these words. Um, 
Uh, Rohan Kashibe was not originally intended to be an important character, but when I started drawing him, I liked how he turned out, and so began utilizing him more often through the story. Because mm-hmm. those are your words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you said exactly that, I think about Stroheim, back when we were doing part two. Yeah, yeah, that's, ac- that's, that's <laughs> absolutely what he does sometimes. He just likes a guy too much. That guy has to be around more, and maybe a different character. <laughs> At least with Rohan, he was basically the same all, all the way throughout. Like, he didn't have any major changes. It's just like, mm-hmm, Rohan's mm-hmm. here. <laughs> he just kept coming back. He doesn't like anyone, but he's here. So our our next sort of example section is just uh, uh, some pages from the first appearance of Jotaro. Yeah. And with little, like, pop-up video text boxes pointing out, like, hey, here's this technique I mentioned earlier in the chapter, and how... Uh, uh, this this bit of planning or this uh, bit of character design work together to make a Jotaro. Yeah. Including the big panel of uh, uh, Tokyo Tower with Jotaro Kujo, 17 years old, 195 centimeters tall, his father, a Japanese jazz musician on tour abroad, his mother, an American of British descent. This part came from the labeled. character history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also... His massive body suggests fantasticality. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this is, teen not is huge. a realistic, like, natural world. This man is eight... This man is a shaved gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While his school uniform suggests normalcy. Ah. Uh, is on the edge between normal and fantastical. Yeah. Uh, like, okay, I, I hate to keep doing this, but every time Araki mm. says something that's just like... No, that's not true. It jumps out so much I had to write it down. Okay, which what what, what is this? Uh, when he talks about works that inspired him uh, uh, and, and strong characters on page 76, mm-hmm. uh, the works I loved, mysteries, thrillers, ninja stories, and so on, were not just limited to manga, but movies and novels as well, start with a violent conflict up front and only later reveal the cause. But those aren't the more e- easily digested big hits. At the time, Star Wars was wildly popular. Mm-hmm. Dude, Star Wars <laughs> starts with a violent conflict and only reveals the cause later. It's v- a very famous opening to a film. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know shit about why the giant spaceship is shooting at the little spaceship for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, he preferred Carrie. <laughs> and that's fine, but you don't have to lie about the first five minutes of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, it's, I almost, it almost feels like these are separate thoughts that should have been different <laughs> paragraphs because, right? like, yeah, he talks about, you know, those aren't the more easily digested big hits. Separate story. At that time, Stars, mm-hmm, Star mm-hmm, Wars mm-hmm. was big, but I was more into Carrie at the time. But it, it because it's just the next sentence, it really does feel like he's saying Star Wars was not, you know, did not have that opening. Are we putting that much faith in the opening text crawl? Are we? I mm. don't. Mm. So yeah, then, then we get into uh, one of the points we keep returning to stated very plainly, making a living as a mangaka. Yeah. Jojo exists for mercenary reasons because serial runs pay the bills. You get, mm-hmm. you publish every week, you get a check every week. Yeah, man. So so like the the culture here is derived from structures, from like, the commercial structures. Mm-hmm. 
like very early on here, he's just just laying it out like, hey, here's how much money you can make as a mangaka, you know, back then and adjusted to like 2017 money. And uh, it ain't a lot. So you want consistency to (laughs) to live. Uh, I forget. How much did he say? Yeah, Poker Under Arms was 31 pages, which only amounted to about 100,000 yen, $450, or in 2017, about 1,200 bucks. It takes a long fucking time to draw that many pages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just earning 100,000 yen a month is was not sustainable for him, so... Uh, so then we talk about maybe the earliest title that people really think of regarding Araki, Cool Shock BT. Yeah, uh, which was like a, a mystery story you know inspired by sherlock holmes and you know he he goes on to talk about more you know giving more examples of ways to grab the reader to hook the reader uh the use Mm -hmm. of the just bt was meant to be kind of mysterious just like the these two english letters and also this was not something i knew but apparently bt was like an example of like how underage criminals are listed in the news in japan or something like that Okay, where sure. they're just listed as like boy one, they're they're never mm, named or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. I just like this the start of this section that here that just has a resistance to a devil boy. <laughs> because in the later stages, uh, just before cancellation of Cool Shock BT, is where he found part of the Royal Road, yeah. which is fighting creepy schemers for a friend's sake. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah, it was Cool Shock BT that lasted for 10 issues. And, yeah, it wasn't until the very end where he had this this weird, creepy boy villain that suddenly grabbed readers a little bit too late, because it, it ended, like, right there. Not only that it was a creepy boy, but it was a creepy boy threatening uh, uh, BT's friend. So yeah. So he, he had, like, motivation to step up for the power of friendship. Yes, and, like, because Shonen Jump, uh, I don't know if they still do, I... I think they might still, but at least back then when this was manga was being published in, in Shonen Jump, they did surveys, like audience surveys, when Cool Shock was running, people weren't super interested in it until like that last chapter or two mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. suddenly people were just like, We really like that ending <laughs> and all of that. And it's maybe a little bit too late, but he still learned something from it. BS. Power of friendship. And like for all the questions i have about how araki writes about writing about characters yeah like it's clear that when he's actually doing his job he can do the damn thing right like yes yes how 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 many times how many predictions have have i guess i because you know what's happening have i made (laughs) on this show that turned out to be accurate because we just picked up a vibe you know yeah yeah that's what character writing is it's picking up a vibe that then gets paid off Mm mm-hmm I'm writing my own book now. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> so, so this concludes the portion of this book that I, I uh, read on the sandy shores of Lake Superior Ooh. at a family retreat. That was fun. Nice. I read all of this yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I just sat on the couch. I got under a blanket. And I read it cover to cover because I had nothing else to do. Uh, anyhow, chapter four, how to write a story. Mm-hmm. Chapter four kind of starts strong on on page 86 with a section that is also reprinted on the back cover of the book. And yeah. when I read this section on the back cover of the book, I, like on my way back from, from my local shop, 
I took a picture of it and sent it to you and said, this is every stand fight. This is every single <laughs> yes. stand fight. I do like this portion. <laughs> yeah, any manga that can be considered famous as well as any novel or movie will share certain story beats that will never stop captivating audiences. The basic version of the structure can be summed up as key shoten ketsu or introduction, development, twist, and resolution. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's, That's the whole it. thing. That's fucking it. That's JoJo. Every time we say this feels like a stand fight without being a fight, it's also this. It's this yep. structure. Yep. So so much of this chapter in particular, and it does get referenced to the rest of the book from here on out, mm-hmm. is showing how this can apply in like every scale in, you know, in the course of a page, in the course of an entire like six year serialized narrative and, yep. and everywhere in between. Even dinner. Even dinner, baby. Mm-hmm. But yeah, th- this was I I liked you know learning about this structure thing too because it become it yeah it's he uses it on every single page of his work and he he does stress that while you know this is a structure it's possible to you know change it up uh w- one of the big ones he brings up a lot is just kisho ten 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 ketsu like just keep twisting it more and more and more until you get to the resolution every 10 is another new power that uh or another new use for the enemy stand yeah basically but yeah we've got the immutable rule of storytelling which is that that structure uh you know introduce the protagonist to the reader protagonist encounters the antagonist the protagonist rises to face a challenge but an additional problem creates a dilemma a vic- and then resolution with a, a victory or other happy end and it's like yeah creators uh who will willfully issue the entire structure by you know making a manga that solely depict depicts their characters uneventful daily lives slice of life can still produce masterworks but only when done with purpose and knowledge like he does stress this a bunch it's like you can break all the rules you just have to be really fucking good at doing it to be successful yeah yeah you got to know the rules to break them you, you got to do it with intent and purpose and understanding yeah yeah you know he he stresses like hey take this structure and internalize it and just like look for it in your daily life <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh so so then we get the rising and falling rule mm-hmm. and this is probably the rule that he believes most strongly in as an immutable unbreakable rule yes which is the protagonist must always be rising must always be moving in an upward direction Yep. To the point that, that, like, there are sections where it's like, well, what about this? And he's like, ah, 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 you fool, you unenlightened rube. <laughs> that is still moving in a rising direction. You just don't see it. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> when he first said that, and, like, there's these two pages here that show a couple different, like, you know, lines in a graph kind of showing rising action and all of that through throughout a story. And there's like a couple good examples and a couple not good examples. And there's one that says not good. And it's like it starts positive And then in the middle, it dips down into the negative before rising back up to the positive at a higher point than it began. And mm-hmm. I was just like, wait, that seems like maybe a good format, depending on the story. <laughs> And this one even says, like, begins happy, dips before rising again. Real life is like this, but it's flawed as a story. Example, hit girl giving up crime fighting and kick-ass too. <laughs> and, like, when he explains the, the thing for kick-ass too, like, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, he's not talking about hit girl's circumstances. He's talking about, like, her, her outlook and beliefs. Yeah. She's, she moves away from adventure 
and and toward like being boring yeah <laughs> and then like the resolution to her is just going back to what she was at the start mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is like so yeah your, your protagonist can always be put in negative circumstances but they cannot move toward negativity they, yeah. they uh cannot relapse into uh uh like making old mistakes that that they learned from before. Mm-hmm. Again, this is real life, but it is flawed as a story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And then there's one that says "good, but an exception," and this is something that starts positive and just has an arc that just keeps going negative. Just <laughs> humans struggle amid a grim setting. In this case, readers find interest in the characters' deterioration. Example: The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which when he talks about the walking dead in the text he's like but secretly you'll find uh that that is moving in a positive direction all (laughs) the time also yeah yeah (laughs) when i write the sequel i'll tell you about this when you're older kid yeah yeah (laughs) so so then we get i think the big secret to stardust crusaders Mm -hmm. it's a tournament arc it's a tournament arc without a tournament yes he talks about the, the, the lim- reason yeah. Stardust Crusaders is the way it is, is uh, it, it was born in the age of tournament arcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a section here that's just called the limits of a tournament structure, which is, hey, when you win, when your protagonist wins a tournament, if you start up another tournament arc, you know, like Ultimate Muscle, which is basically all tournament arcs, you're basically just putting them at the same beginning point that they were before. And like... Mm-hmm trying to scale that up forever is really hard to do in a way that keeps people interested. And yeah, this is why the Stardust Crusaders is the way it is because you're kind of having a tournament arc of just fighting a new guy every new episode, essentially. But they still have forward positive momentum. They're always constantly getting closer to their destination and their goal, which is defeating Dio in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Every fight is further west. Every fight is... Uh, often one step higher on Dio's food chain. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say this, but I think his uh, uh, explanation of the problem with tournament arcs is why the tournaments in original Dragon Ball are the best tournament arcs. Mm-hmm. Because they aren't the end, they're the intermission between yes. uh, all of Goku's globetrotting adventures. They, they, they're an intermission, they're a measurement of uh, all of the the development that happened in the years in between Mm -hmm. and they're a way to like give a snapshot of what's the rest of the world been up to while goku's been having this particular arc in this particular part of the world yeah it's great it's great they're great i just started reading dragon ball recently actually i'm excited also he he brings up a thing here of like hey weak enemies sometimes it's good to have those it's like (laughs) in yeah in stardust crusaders when they fight enemies there is kind of a rising thing of like each enemy is a little stronger or at least seems like more of a threat, but it's not always the case. Like the sun was a chump, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are, there are times where, Hey, they're just, they encounter another obstacle on the way on their journey to Dio, but it's not always as threatening as the one before, uh, which he used to kind of change up the battles and, and the pacing and all of that. Which like, yeah, I like that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Don't seek reality in entertainment is uh 
another interesting section because it, it really points out that the royal road for manga is for manga. It is not yes. the royal road for cinema. It is not for literature. Fuck Godfather 2. But in the very next <laughs> yes. section also... Godfather 2 is pretty cool. I thought that was pretty funny where he's just like, Godfather 2, mm-mm. Godfather 2, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, by it's the way... always, always this acceptance of exceptions, right? Yeah, yeah. Ev- every rule has like, you could do it this way. It's going to be harder, but it's, it's available to you. There's a fork on the royal road. Mm-hmm. There's one thing here in, in this chapter where he talks about story taboos. Mm, yes, yes, it's just before the Godfather 2 part, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he, he's talking about failing story patterns and all that. Uh, things that he thinks shouldn't be included in a story, at least for, for manga. Um, the author speaking directly to you. Uh, self-insert. Dude! Se- <laughs> Have you read JoJo's? Yeah. I think what he considers... What is the narrator? Like- <laughs> I think he does not consider himself as a narrator... Because there's like a really thin layer of something. Like yeah, there's a thin yeah. translucent sheet that he threw over his head and so it's not him. The, the narrator <laughs> is a character. The narrator is just a very enthusiastic uh, a guy who's enthusiastic about all the same facts that Araki yes. is. Like he straight up calls Rohan later in this book his self-insert, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, like, because it's a self-insert based on him, it's not him. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, which the is The narrator why... is a hype man. He's not the author. Yeah. Th- this is not an Animal Man situation. Yeah. Which, <laughs> if he read Animal Man, there'd probably be a footnote or some explanation. Well, okay, in, w- in a specific case, you'll see that this doesn't really violate the rule. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the second story taboo, coincidences. I think one of his examples is just a sword should never fall from the sky that lets them beat a guy or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, the protagonist... Now, if you've put in the work of foreshadowing it, see, all, yes. always a way out, always a back. Door. Yes, he does say, yeah, foreshadowing, that's fine. Uh, the protagonist blunders. So, like, let's say your protagonist is a policeman and he goes out to investigate but forgets his badge and gun. That sounds like a cop to me. Uh, <laughs> and gets into <laughs> a, a dangerous. A cop would never forget their gun. <laughs> well, okay. Now, a cop dropping his gun and discharging it and killing a child, yes. Yeah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. That's not a coincidence. That's foreshadowed by being a cop. Yes. Yes. Okay. The very second a reader thinks a cop isn't going to ever do that, you've probably lost that reader. You want to talk about coincidences? I can't get off coincidences. How did uh-huh. cars die? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was Joseph's uh, pr- primal gut instinct to hold up the jewel that mm-hmm. caused that to happen therefore not a coincidence and the <laughs> and those those uh last bits of of rock from the eruption that struck cars <laughs> right as joseph thrust his finger forward <laughs> non-coincidentally <laughs> that was joseph and and mother nature uh becoming one briefly ah uh, uh, okay yeah. okay uh and number four, it was all a dream. Yeah, it was all a dream. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, hasn't happened in his work. I mean, Death 13 was a dream, but that's different. <laughs> I, I'll give him that. That is not what he's talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it all a dream is a question with only one response. Give me back the part of my life I wasted on reading this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ah, ah, ah. 
<laughs> I, I laughed when I read that. It's a fun read. Like there, there's some sass in here. There, yeah, there's absolutely a little, bit of, a little bit of sass every once in a while. But yeah, then we get to purposefully attempting a negative arc, which is where he's like, "Oh, Godfather Two, actually, yeah." Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that that leads into why I killed Jonathan Joestar. Yes, it turns it turns out you don't have to survive for it still to be a happy ending. Is, yeah. is the bottom line here. It can it can still be a positive arc even if the the protagonist dies. Because the positivity here is that his wife and his child survive by dying. And that's the positivity mm-hmm. of, of that. So, yeah. Like, you don't, you don't have to, he doesn't have to convince me here. I am on his side. Yes, oh, the yeah. end of, of uh, Phantom Blood is a pot of a positive ending until the first chapter of Stardust Crusader. Yes. <laughs> right? Come on. Yeah, now. yeah. Like, again, it's it's one of those things where it's like, like, there's some lines near the end of Star's Crusaders where we, we even brought this up on the podcast where, like, you can, can kind of read into it that, like, oh, maybe the reason why Dio needs Joestar blood is because Jonathan's body is, is still fighting against Dio mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it, preventing him from getting to full power and all that. And so, like, Jonathan's battle still isn't over. But, man, if that were a little more explicit and definitely what was happening, I think that would make part three feel a little bit less like a defeat for Jonathan. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I, I did enjoy, you know, reading him justify, like, why Jonathan's death was still a positive for the ending of that story and all of that. Um, and then he, he talks about just like, hey, you got to throw your, protag- like, not throw, rather hurl your protagonist into peril. Yes. And this kind of leads into him talking about, or is this later, actually, where he kind of talks about how to write your protagonists and how he basically comes up with a situation and then he just sits there and imagines what his characters would do. Th- and this ha- comes up pretty clearly, I think on 106, where he talks about how like, I know what danger they're going to be in from the outline stage. I yeah. don't know how they're going to get out of it yes. until I reach that point in the writing, in the scripting. Yeah. And when he's talking about that, he, he just so interesting to me. Yeah. Like, he, it, 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 it's like uh, taking turns with himself. Like Araki, the outliner, is the villain, and Araki, the writer, coming yeah. coming up later, is the hero. Like, there's been some times where I've heard like authors or or screenwriters say this, and sometimes it comes off as a little too like up their own ass or something, or it's just like, oh, my characters are living beings. You know, I'm not writing; they are. And stuff, but like I kind of believe it with Iraqi a little here, <laughs> where it's just like a lot of you know his protagonists especially are generally p- pretty clear in how they act and what they do and how they react to things. So I can believe him just saying, "Hey, I thought up of a crazy situation that Rohan gets into in one of his stories, and then I just kind of imagine what the fuck Rohan would do." And then I write a response to what Rohan does and, you know. Like, the the example of this on 106 is the end of part four. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. I put Josuke in such a bad place that even I thought he might not be able to win. Like Josuke, I couldn't see a way out for him. And for a time, I was worried that I'd gotten myself into a bad spot. I, I had to put myself into my character and be with him in that terrible struggle. And when he finally found a way through that impossible scenario, I was elated as if I had actually gone through that experience myself. I'm curious which part particularly. 
Because right. if it's what I think it is, the solution wasn't anything Josuke did. It was Okiyasu's not dead, actually. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, that's the lowest moment that he needs yeah. to be rescued from, and he gets rescued. Yeah, it de- like, when he explains that, you can see it everywhere in JoJo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I've always felt as if a lot of the time fights and certain things are almost kind of like a stream of consciousness thing especially fights in five and some and parts of part six that i've seen where sometimes his fights almost feel dreamlike with either the logic or just the flow of them and it's just like yeah if you're kind of writing in this format it kind of would end up that way sometimes i think Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and you know also kind of ends up with it's it feels like sometimes you know, he does do foreshadowing his fights and stuff like that sometimes, but it does come off to me like, man, it must be really hard to foreshadow stuff when you don't know what's going to happen as you're, <laughs> as you're writing it like that. <laughs> um, which also kind of leads into the well, whole... I mean, if he's figuring this out in the scripting stage, yeah, then that's he true. can insert that back in when he's doing the pages, right? That's true. Yeah, I, I, I suppose so. Though, though that does lead to a lot of the, like, um, the part in the in fights where the jojo reveals like aha i fucking got you dude and it's mm-hmm. just like there was no foreshadowing to it it's just like hey i did this thing and it wasn't depicted in the panels <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 you know like that bit with uh every time they they uh tunnel down into a small hole every time they tunnel down to a small hole or that bit with um when giorno was fighting um the the surgeon guy chocolata Chocolata, yeah, when it's like, you know, the whole bit with like reflecting the bullets off the helicopter yes, blades and, and stuff it turns like that. Into a bug. Yeah, yeah. That that feels like a big example of that. <laughs> also there's a a bit here where he talks about, "Hey, here's a really uh uh something you should learn storytelling from is Hemingway." Yes. Like, there's straight up yes. just a, a small excerpt from one of Hemingway's short stories, uh oh, The Killers. Mhm. I think he's using this as an example of show don't tell. Uh, actually yeah, yeah where it's just like the beginning bit of the killers where it's just like hey just their dialogue of ordering food the the way they insist the way they don't listen the the way yeah. like yeah they're, they're above the rules of this restaurant that like you're <laughs> you're, you're too late for the hot cakes we, we are we're serving chicken tenders now yeah yeah uh, <laughs> just using that as an example of just like hey when you're writing stuff try to convey information this way rather than just telling when you can mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um they're rude to service workers they are obviously criminals yes exactly yes. Uh, th- uh, something i really liked here in this this little section that is dialogue is best when natural uh i'm often told that the dialogue in my manga is distinctive but i'm only writing lines based on the way i actually think and talk in my daily life <laughs> uh, i love that I mean, that's a strange thing to say, because some of these characters have a really strong voice, right? Have very, yeah. dis- like, they, they sound distinctive. You can tell just from text if it's, you know, we just finished part five, if it's the boss or if it's Bruno, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's There's got to be limits on like, oh, yeah, they all just talk how I do. <laughs> yeah. That's, that I mean, can't be 100% true. Yeah, I mean, he, again, like with everything else he says, you know, he there are ex- exceptions, and he says... Uh, right after that, actually, characters vastly different from yourself are an exception to this rule and will likely require mm-hmm, research. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're writing a chef or or anybody like that, you're going to have to make sure to know, like, the, uh, you know, the appropriate jargon and stuff like that. So, 
I just do think it's funny. It's just like, people say my dialogue is weird, but this is how I talk. I don't know. <laughs> I, I do like the idea. If I suddenly walk, I, I do like this section. If I suddenly walked into a desk, I'd probably say something like, fucking hell, or what the hell is a desk doing here? <laughs> Those are the kind of lines that would come natural to me if I were in that situation. Yeah. yeah no shit. I wouldn't say, I hope I didn't hurt that desk. <laughs> or, wow, that was something else. Who would say that? What, a JoJo character would say that. What if you did, though? Yeah. Like, the, the line, I hope I didn't hurt that desk, makes me feel like he sometimes does write characters just by mm-hmm. having them say the opposite of what he say he would say. Because that honestly sounds like a Josuke line. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> I hope I didn't hurt that desk, sounds like uh, what the alien in part four would say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this chapter ends with an illustration of uh, suspense mm-hmm. taken from where when Holly is found unconscious in in uh, uh, early part three, and yeah. specifically Avdol finding a spoon on the ground, and then you see a hand under the door, and then it is revealed Holly ha- has fallen unconscious and and is lying yeah. in the middle of the kitchen. Yeah, honestly, that framing is a very distinct. Like, Araki does that all all the time. Oh, yeah. You see a little hint of something slightly out of place, and then a bit of fallout, and then the problem. Mm-hmm. It works. Yeah, yeah, it does. There's a reason why he uses it all the time. <laughs> uh, also, I just love, because, like, when you're seeing these, it's not the full pages. It's just, like, specific panels cut, cut out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's one panel cut out that's, like, the very beginning of, like, setting up the suspense, which is... Not even Avdol finding, you know, the spoon. It's just Joseph walking around, calling out Holly's name and looking for her in his pajamas. And I just like the little, like, bubble pointing out his pajamas and just says, the pattern on his pajamas indicate he has a spirited personality. (laughs) (laughs) When you're making something from a blank page, everything's there for a reason. You know, Mm -hmm. it it might not be... You might not be able to... uh, uh, describe the reason fully but it's there oh yeah some in your brain something in your hand put that there mm-hmm. so let's talk about that in chapter five art expresses everything art is the mangaka's killer technique i love the way this chapter starts i love it because it points it because it makes the point that good is an insufficient word yeah nobody yes. knows what good is mm-hmm he really stresses throughout this, like, just because a manga is drawn well doesn't mean that manga will be a hit. And conversely, some manga might make you think, how is something drawn this poorly so popular? And, like, the, the immediate thing that came up into my mind is Attack on Titan. Uh, I've, I've seen that manga, you know, it's very popular. I see it Barnes & Noble and freaking Myers now. Every time I've seen it, at least the early volumes, the art in that is not great. And yet, mega popular. Um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or I mean to take a to take a more extreme example mm-hmm. like this is being written when a uh, uh, One Punch Man and uh, yes. Mob Psycho are yes. blowing up. That's like yeah, that was this the comes example. out a couple months before the One Punch Man anime debuts. Yeah, yeah, both Mob and One Punch Man were pretty popular even before they had any type of like. Before I mean, even One the, Punch the Man. The One Punch Man redraws had been coming yeah, out redraws. for a few years, which might be making a different point to, to yeah, go along with this. But yeah, the, the ones done by One, his art is very like amateur looking. 
<laughs> but I will say that his writing is really fucking good, especially with Mob Psycho. He makes wonderful characters, but like especially when you look at the later the the later pages of the original One Punch Man comic or you know, any part of Mob Psycho done by one. He has like every other skill that you need for <laughs> illustration wise. Like he has extremely good composition. He knows how yeah. to do really good action and stuff. It's just the character, like the 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 fidelity itself is amateurish. But it doesn't really fucking matter. This is what I mean when good isn't when I say that good is an insufficient word, that nobody knows what good is. Yeah. Like okay okay, to to go to like where where I live, when people say the Mobile Suit Gundam 1979 has bad art. I mm-hmm. think they are blind. Like, yeah, <laughs> the 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 weight, the momentum, the the use of their budget limited colors is incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's vibrant. I think it's gorgeous, especially before Yaz worked himself into the hospital. To be fair, <laughs> yes, yes, but, <laughs> but it's a really good looking show. Yeah, and it's just like. It accomplishes what it's trying to de- to depict, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like just because it doesn't look, you know, it doesn't look expensive. It doesn't I'll look expensive. Yeah, and yeah. like, but who cares? Also, like, and so yeah, the, a lot of this is going into you know what does your art actually need to do mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. successful. So so we get a framework for that: realism and signification. Yeah. Where uh, realism is kind of what it sounds like, like not necessarily photorealistic, but it it looks like the thing. Mm -hmm. It is an accurate, clear, yes, that's the, and signification is, I know what that means. Yes. Yeah. Signification is Mickey Mouse. Like the difference between, uh, yeah, Mickey Mouse is one of his examples. I was going to go outside of the book and say like, realism versus signification is the jeep in a tintin story and tintin in a tintin story <laughs> yes <laughs> uh another example is from the book that is a really good example and, and similar to that too is uh how toriyama draws in dragon ball because yes. all the characters are pretty simple pretty cartoony especially like you look at goku and there's not much to him but you know that's Goku. But then you look at any of the mechs or vehicles or guns that he oh, draws, and God, they're abs- I love a Toriyama motorcycle so much. Yes, they are absurdly <laughs> fucking detailed. He is so into the mechanics and the like workings of those things, even when they're fantasy vehicles. And yeah, it's it's such a stark difference, but he makes them work together. But you using that example, as he does, calls into question one of the, the statements that follow it in this book. Mm-hmm. The important parts need to be realistic and everything else doesn't. Mm-hmm. Dragon Ball is not a story about motorcycles. That's true. <laughs> but, but he also does stress when he's talking about Toriyama that he's like the fucking best at this. And no, yes. <laughs> no one has ever matched that. So again, <laughs> I think he might be a bit of an, <laughs> an exception. But yeah, he he does go on to say that like, yeah, how do you simultaneously pursue realism and signification when they're like opposing qualities? Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. important, realistic, everything else does not need to be. So yeah, the, the how to pursue both at the same time section on 123 starts with two examples. The second one is the Vor artist joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
A titillating manga might emphasize a woman's eyelashes, lips, bust, but can fully portray the intended eroticism without realistically de- depicting her nostrils. Yeah. This is the same thing as putting up a picture of, like, a, a safe-for-work art, but with a really, really detailed inside of the mouth and just, yep. like, a little raised eyebrow emoji. That's the same thing. Yep. You can always tell, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that, too. <laughs> I thought that too. Yeah, he he talks about like if you pursue realism in everything, readers won't know where to be looking. And and he even admits that like, hey, I've had that problem myself. And so when mm-hmm. he was working on like at the time his current serial, which is jo- uh, Jojolian, uh, he was working on giving the manga a tempo. And so he kept drawings light when he wanted to ease up and only got more detailed when things were getting intense or important things were happening you know, action scenes and stuff like that. Um, this is something we talked about a little bit as a technique when we uh, did an episode on Rohan at the Louvre, I recall. Oh, yeah. P- particularly the backgrounds. Yes, that's right. And he, he also goes on to say, like, hey, also, realism and signification, the balance of that is also really going to depend on, like, what type of story you're telling, what type of genre you're you're in. Because, hey, if you're doing you know, a manga about food, that food better look pretty fucking good. (laughs) If you're doing sci-fi or horror, you better have a lot of detailed stuff. Now, a a lot, a lot of the chapter from this point on is actual practical drawing technique of like proportions and joints and, and, uh, depicting, uh, light and, and, uh, the, and fire and, and the elements as someone, who went to school for related things. Mm-hmm. How does this all strike you? How, as someone who has expertise that I do not, what, I mean, what do you think of all this practical, technical advice? I mean, when I saw all the practical stuff, it wasn't stuff that I skipped, but it's like, yeah, a lot of the stuff I was pretty familiar with. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Th- this is all like, yeah, especially if like you go into like any beginning, like illustration classes, you're going to see a lot of this stuff book might be cheaper though just just fyi <laughs> this book might be cheaper oh yeah yeah you know the the center guideline that goes down the middle of the body you know the the j- just having certain things that are just general like hey this is generally where the elbows are going to be this is where the eyes are going to be this is generally how they line up even you know regardless of body size or type these things are generally around the, these spots and then, you know, once you start learning the basic rules of the joints and all of that, that's when you can learn how, like, flexible things can be. And, yeah, that, this is all... Everybody learns this, I think, if, if you go into <laughs> illustration. Um, but when we get to this point, this is when he starts talking about JoJo poses. And yes. even he calls them JoJo poses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, and also, even before the JoJo poses, there's a bit um, here where he talks about, like, specifically... There's a whole section of just like, hey, drawing guns and and other things. Like if you don't know the inner workings of mechanical things and you start drawing them, people are going to get pulled out of your story because they will notice that it's all fucked up and wrong. <laughs> so like even if you never draw the inside of a gun, you need to know what the inside of a gun is like so that when you're drawing it, it looks correct and it's not pulling right, people right. out. Yeah, then then he you know talks about like you brought up earlier drawing drawing the elements and stuff like that like drawing fire you're basically drawing wind water is drawing gravity uh, you know 
drawing light is actually drawing shadows and, and stuff like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Which, like, yeah, man, it's abs- absolutely. Um, <laughs> like, we, get we a- even get down to the nitty gritty of his preferred paper weight. Yes. And <laughs> and this is something I'm glad he says. This is something that's like an easy pitfall for anyone trying to become an illustrator or a graphic designer or whatever is getting too hung up and obsessed with the tools mm-hmm, thinking mm-hmm. that the tools are what makes the artist because it's like yeah he talks about what types of pens he likes to use and the type of paper he likes to use uh, but he really says it doesn't matter find what works for you because it's really easy early on to get hung up on getting the nicest supplies and well like yes nice supplies certainly help it doesn't make you better at drawing really um yeah, yeah. And it's like, even if you're a graphic designer or you, you do stuff in Photoshop, it's really easy to get hung up on finding, you know, spending a ton of time finding the best Photoshop brushes. Like, those brushes aren't going to make you better. They certainly help, but, like, regard, just use the basic Photoshop brushes and just draw, man. <laughs> like Spe- Speaking of, what do you think of his statement on uh, uh, physical drawing versus digital drawing? I totally get why he does that so okay one of the things that i liked him talking about here with doing physical versus digital is um he finds drawing on with physical medium um to be akin to doing a live performance yes where it's just like your mistakes are there and you can't change them generally and so it's just part of the work now like almost just like being on a street corner playing guitar for people or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or you know stuff like that and it's almost like a more of a dialogue with the audience like you're more presently there with them and i totally understand wanting to do stuff that way i i find that admirable i would never do it because i hate making mistakes um <laughs> i want a fucking undo button i don't want to waste time um <laughs> The the other reason he gives is like you can turn a, a, a physical image, you, you can turn you know paint and ink on board into digital. Scanners yep. exist. There's no reverse of a scanner. Yep, Pr- absolutely. Printers don't count, I guess. But like I, when you read it, you you get what he means and why yeah, printers don't you, count. You can't turn it back into an actual physical media where where you know every individual pencil stroke is there or ink or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. But the scanner doesn't give you the layers and everything either. So That's true. But the original <laughs> is still there, I guess. I right, don't know. right, right. Yeah. But yeah, I totally understand where he's coming from um, with that. And also, it's like he's been drawing. He's been doing Jojo for 30 fucking years. Like, well, it's totally possible to adapt and just move on to digital. I can totally understand someone just finding the way they like to draw and not wanting to move on from that. <laughs> right, right, Just right. getting out of your comfort zone after you've been doing that for so long. Yeah, I get that. And also he brings up like, hey, if I hadn't been drawing, you know, on with physical mediums, there never would have been that JoJo art <laughs> uh, art show or anything. Yeah, yeah. Like having the actual art up there, like just have the digital stuff isn't quite the same. So yeah, I get that. That did lead me to just thinking about like, oh, what if you did though? What if the, uh, uh, it was all on interactive touchscreens mm. and you could go through the uh, the various layers in the Photoshop oh. file as, oh, how cool would that be? That would be cool, actually. I wonder if that's ever been done. It, it must have, but I would like that too, actually. 
So uh, another thing he brings up right toward the end of this chapter is the idea that uh, still drawings are eternal moments. Yeah. And that's just such a fun way to think about art. Yeah. There's actually a couple more things in this chapter that I, I want to point out and really like. Sure, um, sure, sure. Uh, there, there's a bit called I Found My Style in Italy. Not a big mm-hmm, surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like kind of learning where the origin, maybe like of the JoJo pose or just the the very flexible, like exaggerated poses where those come from. Um, he talks about how like he wanted to learn more about drawing by becoming manga because assistant but he lived in an area too far from tokyo to really make a commute possible right um and so rohan he... makes it work just to go to the gym yeah get dedicated dude what's wrong with you <laughs> so he he just kept trying to like study the fundamentals and eventually started traveling you know going to different art museums and just before jojo was serialized he went on a trip to italy uh and he was in Rome and saw one of Bernini's sculptures, which is uh, Apollo and Daphne, which mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. shows a woman kind of twisting and kind of beginning to turn into a tree. Uh, and he was just struck by that that sculpture by, you know, just the, the kind of way the bodies were, were twisting. And he just remarked that, like, hey, I never see this type of posing or, or like, twisting of the body in manga, really. And so he just started incorporating that into his style. And that's why everyone does fucking JoJo poses now. Uh, <laughs> and I just, I just love learning about that. And also, I just really like, you know, along with the, the whole, you know, still art is like a moment caught for eternity. Mm-hmm. I also really just like him talking about um, visual art is about making the invisible visible. Yes, yes. I like that a lot. You know, all art is trying to convey some type of feeling or concept that isn't, that isn't a visible thing and so art is you know your your way of taking that invisible thing and making it something you can visually see i like that a lot uh um, be it love friendship justice or something else yeah how do you make justice visible that is the challenge yeah. uh and that's why he and then he follows that up with saying like hey homon and stands make supernatural powers visible <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah stands certainly the more successful version of that but yeah if a character punched a frog, and the frog was completely unharmed, but the rock beneath it cracked open, that image would convey the power of the character's supernatural abilities. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense if you just say it. Yeah. And by the way, I think it's somewhere around here where Araki says it like, hey, the reason why stands were created was because my editor was getting really bored of Hamon. <laughs> <laughs> You and me both, big guy. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff in that chapter I really like. Um, mm-hmm. But that leads us to what setting is to manga, chapter, chapter six. Chapter six, the setting chapter. Uh, this is one that I didn't take much notes on because much like chapter five, it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, yep. I, I watch a lot of movies. I've read a fair number of books in my life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Readers want to be immersed. There, There is a thing I, I do enjoy here. Um, the road talk- trip? Uh, no, this is where he okay. talks about where he fucked up with Bao. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, when doing setting, like, Bao was basically set, like, in the 80s or, or whatever. And, like, the Bao, the protagonist, uh, you know, he can turn into, like, a monster. And it was because he was being experimented on in, like, an, like one of those evil X-Files experimental trains that's always running. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and he, the train runs along the Sanriku coast, and in real life, that railroad hasn't been converted to electricity and still runs diesel rail cars. 
but he Couldn't wanted make the X Files today. All the evil trains would get diverted onto side tracks while freights uh, go. Yep, yeah, constantly <laughs> getting stopped. Makes the trip from Michigan to Chicago way fucking longer than it needs to be. Uh, but that railroad in real life was still diesel rail cars. But he really wanted Bao to be turned into a monster by getting shocked with electricity. So there needed to be power lines on that railway. That railway. Uh, and he's just like, I fucked up with that because I got so many letters where people were taken out from the story going, hey, one, there are no power lines there. It's diesel cars. And also, two, it's one track, not two. <laughs> of and that, all the people to piss off with your first uh, train uh, guys, train guys, man, especially fatal. in Japan when they have so many wonderful trains, like don't fuck with them. You're never coming back from that. And so, yeah, it's like that was one of the things that hit Iraqi is just like, wow, I really got to make sure my settings are right or everyone's going to be on my ass. Uh, Toward the middle of the chapter, you get like an example of the questions you need to ask about your your setting that is very reminiscent of the character background. Oh, yeah. Like worksheet. Uh, We got like what a dozen questions to to ask yourself about an organization, uh, almost as many as a historical time period, etc. Yeah. But then I think the highlight of the chapter, the the thing from this book that I think has been excerpted more than anything, Mm -hmm. the sense of distance, Japan versus the American Midwest. (laughs) Yes, I was waiting for when this part would come up. God. I just I just got to read this whole part. It's Without good. going there for yourself, it's impossible to comprehend the feeling of scale in the Midwestern United States, where the scenery stretches on forever and unchanging. The feeling of distance there is nothing like in Japan. Say, for an example, an enemy is approaching from afar, at such a distance that escape would be trivial in Japan. In the Midwest, the open landscape remains identical from one hour to the next, and I was struck by the real sense that I could never make an escape from such an adversary. <laughs> There was simply nowhere to hide. (laughs) The Uh, corn, the corn, Iraqi. Travel there is mostly done by car. When you drive across those vast plains, the scenery is mostly devoid of any ups and downs and is dotted only by the occasional town with nothing to claim but chain stores, seemingly little to provide amusement aside from watching movies, and you hardly ever see anyone else about. Rather than inspire thoughts of enjoying nature, it felt empty and lifeless and made me wonder if there was any fun to living there at all. Yes. A Rocky invented Midwest emo right here on this page. Yep. <laughs> like, I never hit, like, the Midwest emo stage growing up. I almost feel like I, I'm getting hit with it now because right. I have been, I have visited enough actual cities and cultural centers in the U.S. that I have the comparison point for what the Midwest actually is now. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, fuck, this sucks. <laughs> If you want to find places where you can, like, commune with nature and, and like, enjoy the beauty of it, mm-hmm. you're never that far away, but it sure ain't on the highway. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Neither of us are too far from a Starved Rock State Park in Illinois. Yep. Gorgeous. I recommend you go sometime. Enjoy a canyon. It was great. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but you got to know it's there. What America presents to you is is a Taco Bell every 15 miles. It sucks, dude. (laughs) Like, I'm at the point where I'm pretty fed up with, like, okay, and I'm in an area that's not as bad as a lot of other places in the Midwest because I live in a college city. So there's, like, when you go downtown, there's actually some stuff to do. 
There's mm-hmm. actually some semblance of culture, but it's all centered around the college kids. And I'm 33 now, and I don't feel like I belong, even though I look like <laughs> one of them age-wise, especially if I shave the beard off. Um, anytime like I go back into Michigan to visit my parents, and I'm going through like mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. Genesee clio mount morris area like yes there dude there is nothing the only development has been that there's one fancy like brewery there now and there's a bunch of weed shops that's it everything else (laughs) is the same or doesn't exist anymore and it's nothing it's so bad everyone who lives in the midwest i am so sorry (laughs) and iraqi is too apparently (laughs) anyways (laughs) Uh, chapter seven, then all elements connect to the theme. Ah, here we go. All right. We talked about foreshadowing. Okay. So, so theme here is not given a direct definition. It is instead, you are instead left to infer Iraqi's definition of theme Mm -hmm. by examples. And those examples don't help because they're so remarkably broad. Yeah. Some of them are like themes as in the moral, you know, the, the lesson of the story, the thing that it's really about. And But one, mm-hmm. uh, uh, when he goes back to, to Kachikame, that's the, just the fucking premise. That's yes. a premise, not a theme. What do you mean theme? <laughs> yeah. The, the vague definition of what a theme is, is like what I thought theme meant in like eighth grade English. <laughs> yeah, I was also a little confused here because it, it never really... It's also a short-ass chapter. It is. Compared to everything else. This chapter is five pages. This is a five-page chapter. Yeah. There is useful stuff in here if you have a theme in mind. Like, Mm -hmm. I think the the point on the first page that's, like, frozen, the the film, uh, uh, works because it is frozen. Because the landscape, because the setting illuminates Mm -hmm. the theme. I think that is uh, an interesting thing. I think that's part of what makes it work. Yeah. I might be more cynical and say it works because it has the aesthetics of a princess movie and the uh, actual thematic and action work of the X-Men. <laughs> and that yeah. turns out to be a really fruitful uh, uh, combination. <laughs> yeah. But but no, he, he is right. That movie would not work in a desert. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but what's a theme, dude? What's a th- When you say what is theme, theme? Yeah. when you say whatever word is being translated as theme, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. There's a bit here where he's talking about like, okay, themes reveal the creator's philosophy and Mm -hmm. like even the same theme tackled by different people will be different just because it's revealing, you know, the thoughts and beliefs of the the author behind it and all that. But then I think what's funny is that the, for for another example, take a mangaka who wants to draw erotic work. What actually is erotic will depend upon the mangaka. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) but is, is eroticism the theme in this example? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's just like... Can horny be a theme? I mean, I've seen enough anime to think that, yeah, I guess. (laughs) Uh, But but we do get an authorial statement on the, the single overarching theme of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. An affirmation that mankind is wonderful. You want to talk about broadness to the point of unusability. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say that JoJo's is a very thematic work. It is dense. It is rich. And every part has its own theme that I think is much clearer, much more interesting. But if you put 
all five that I know of, plus the 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 others together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do need some, a wide umbrella, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a pay into humanity. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I gave the more specific version. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, this idea of a pay into is that how you say it? I always forget. No. Uh, a, a pay into humanity was not a product of deep consideration or of wrestling over what I wanted to draw. It was a phrase I came up with lightly. Yeah, yeah. The the editor needed something for like the the, the first published collection to to put in. Yeah, and that's what happened and that makes perfect sense as a story and the thing that's surprising to me is him going on to say actually having this written down really helps me in the future yeah really really because it seems (laughs) again so broad as to be useless yeah it's not like humanity is really contrasted against other things too much like they aren't struggling Mm -hmm. against nature they're struggling against evil human beings (laughs) yeah humanity struggle against its own evil okay okay i got you there sure yeah because the only non-human antagonists we've had are the pillar men and they ain't (laughs) coming back yeah i've always thought like one of the more broader things that you could possibly assign to jojo is just like god i don't even know anymore it's gone it left my head (laughs) some it's just more of like a general like making use of power for the right reasons or something it sometimes Spider-Man. especially it's, it's, Spider-Man. it's spider-man it's spider-man yeah <laughs> the only way to stop a bad guy with a stand is a good guy with a stand <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's basically just spider-man to, to go back to one of our themes of this episode th- this chapter is one of the cases where araki makes the point like okay the royal road is pointed toward like commercial success you will not get evicted but mm-hmm. if that's all you're going for if you're picking based on industry trends to sell you're gonna make dog shit and it's not gonna work yep yeah the mistake of choosing a theme based on what will sell yeah because uh, themes are like fashion they change maybe mm-hmm. that's why jojo's needs such a broad one to go for 30 plus years <laughs> that also also going back to the art chapter briefly there is a bit that kind of ties into this a little bit where he talks about like art changes with the times too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that that was like something he really struggled with like one of his examples is um the style of eyebrows on men changed over time yes. where everyone <laughs> when he first started drawing men always had really thick bulky eyebrows and over time they became a lot more thin and more feminine and that was something he got stuck with because he still viewed yeah. like Men I mean, is having he, these he was thick so eyebrows. rooted in the thick eyebrows milieu that Lisa Lisa got them bushy brows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought that was interesting, too, just, like, him talking about, like, it wasn't until, like, midway through part four that he was finally able to get over that eyebrow thing he was stuck on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that really is around the time when all of his ca- all of his male characters started to get a lot more, like, lean-looking, too, and, and started to bulk down. So that that's the end of the main chapters. Now we get into two uh, other short, not quite as short uh, uh, as mm-hmm. the last one chapters on implementation. Example one is is uh, all about where his ideas come from. Yeah, and uh, the, the way you get your ideas is to is to perform media analysis on your own life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where ideas are found. Uh, and like he really stresses in this, like everyone's process for this part is going to be really different. Uh, I like seeing his process because 
Um, especially when it comes to the panel layouts, they are way less detailed than I thought they would be. Yeah, yeah, we we get uh, a comparison of some some uh, panel roughs, and then the completed pages from a, a I believe a very early chapter in part eight, and yeah. the roughs are illegible. <laughs> yes, they they are just nonsense. This thing that I thought was a finger turns out to be an arm in the finished yeah, piece. Yeah, yeah. Like the first page, there's some dialogue bubbles with writing in them. There's some other writing around that's either sound effects or notes. And then everything else on this first example page is incomprehensible. It's just squiggles. There is no discernible human figure <laughs> or object or anything. And, the and only... it turns out a lot of these bubbles are representing people and where they sit yeah. on the page. And a lot of these squiggles are uh, uh, the motion lines to, to show like... If I was a Rocky looking at this, who wrote it down with intent, and of course could read the language that the notes are in, yeah. I would know exactly what's what. Yep. I believe that this is very useful for him, and it's useful as an illustration to show that your roughs can be rough as shit. Your roughs don't have yeah, to make sense I, to anyone outside your own brain. Yeah, I love seeing this because I it, I <laughs> bet it's a pretty big pitfall for beginners to think that their roughs have to be. Yeah, why like, are you spending really... half an hour on that? Yeah. Stop it. Stop like, there it. Is, You're not going to get to bed tonight if you do roughs like that. Yeah, there, in these first two example pages, there is only one discernible human figure in this, and it's the very bottom panel on the, the second page, which is just... <laughs> it looks like a melon! <laughs> it's just a melon with a little triangle for a nose and an eye. It's an extreme close-up <laughs> on an orange with an eyeball in profile. <laughs> yeah. it's. I love these roughs, because they're, they're just... They're great. They're so good. They're so good. And like, there's a bit here where he says like, the rough layouts of storyboards are something I do by feel and to explain the process in words would be exceedingly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and he says like, there's, you know, there's countless approaches in how to do these. This is just the way I do them. I love it. But like, when you, you get to the very end of this, uh, uh, like appendix chapter, I guess, mm -hmm. you can see exactly how the roughs work, exactly how useful they were yep. in like arranging things on a space, leading the eye around. And like, I, I get it. I don't mm -hmm. get it, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. There's also a bit, a little bit early on before we see some of these roughs where he's just talking about, you know, ideas, where to get them and all that. He, he talks about how he believes ideas never run out. It's the only thing that can run out is the creator's curiosity. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and because good ideas come from one's life and experiences. Losing interest in the world means losing the ability to come up with ideas. Don't get boring. <laughs> don't get old. Stop it. Stop yeah, getting stop old. Stop getting old. Stop doing the crossword puzzle. Go out. Don't watch MASH. Come on. Uh, you better get a lot of ideas from that, that MASH episode. Yeah. Also, something that comes up a couple, of, not too often, but just enough that it I notice it every time was when he talks about keeping his antennae tuned to stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Implementation example two is a, a more detailed breakdown of a story that we've talked about on this show. Yep. Uh, the the millionaire's village uh, thus spoke Rohan short. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the the uh, one shot manga version where we talked about the uh, animated adaptation, but uh, a very close adaptation, same story. Yep. And recently, the the first volume, the first collected volume of the spoke Rohan hit you know its English publication, and I think we both bought it. Yes, we did. 
Yes. I, I, I just bought both of these this week. I haven't read through it. I have some other comics in line ahead of it. But yeah. I did grab it and uh, uh, I did an experiment, which we'll talk about more later after we talk about the chapter. Okay. But this chapter is really just running through the book, essentially, step by step. Mm-hmm. We start with getting an idea we, uh, uh, and then how to communicate that. Uh, uh, this story uh, introduces Kyoka, and so we get to revisit the character chapter to, to talk mm-hmm. about how Kyoka came to be, the person that she came to be, uh, uh, etc. The path between inspiration and story like you yeah. can follow it step by step, but if you're just told the start and end, it makes no sense, which is right. so interesting to me. Yeah. So Araki was on vacation and he overheard a conversation <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> between some owners of country homes talking about wild boars coming onto their property and uh, uh, hiring hunters to, to come clear the, uh, their land of these dangerous boars. Yeah. <laughs> they, they Araki read a tweet about 30 to 50 feral hogs. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I love the inspiration for that. I love, like, his kind of thought process behind that, which led to Millionaire Village. So, so yeah, that became the tension between the wealthy and nature mm-hmm. and uh, these secluded places where the wealthy can be with one another without the rest of us, which be, uh, is why, you know, Millionaire Village has no roads and everything. Mm-hmm. And And he also had another idea about, like, etiquette came into his mind somewhere what if etiquette was a fight what if i i did my uh uh kisho tenketsu thing to to an etiquette struggle and that Mm. all became millionaire village yeah it's so good throughout this entire thing yeah he's basically revisiting every single thing he's brought up including that kisho tenketsu thing something he brought up previously that i also liked here when when he's talking about uh kyoka the the Shonen Jump editor character in this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's talked about like when he makes characters, sometimes he gets attached to them. And like, he, he says he's even cried when they die in his stories before. Um, I believe I, it. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. D- Bruno. I'm surprised that the pages you get in the manga aren't like stained with tears or something. When, when Bruno <laughs> dies. Like he liked Bruno so much. You can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like when he went, uh, went out to make Kyoka. He wanted to make like kind of a conceited character that was kind of annoying and, and all of this. But then he admits that like, Hey, by like the middle of the story, I kind of really liked her. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, This chapter and the previous both talk about dealing with editors. Uh, uh, And one quote that I thought was interesting is the very fact you're getting any feedback at all means your editor hasn't given up on you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the part points uh, that and also there's there's a small bit in the art chapter about like dealing with people saying your art sucks and you're bad at it yeah. uh, that, that really point to this being aimed at the novice at the, mm-hmm. the the people starting even younger than he started, you know, mm-hmm. and like, don't don't be afraid of your editor. You're, you're a team. You're a team. Yeah, you're in this together. Yeah, I really do like the, the bits with the, the editors that pop up just talking about the like the relationship he has with them and what you what type of relationship you should have with them like he does make it clear that they can be like really strict and really harsh but like that's just their job in all these examples you never get an idea that there's something that came from an editor that he regrets being in the story oh no yeah there, there's even a bit earlier there might be but it doesn't get mentioned in the book yeah even in subtext 
there's even a bit um in the previous chapter where he's talking about you know getting your ideas and stuff and he talks about like hey meeting with your editors they're really useful for bouncing ideas off of them getting feedback for them and all that and like there wouldn't be stands without an editor's note like, yeah on. totally yeah like it's important stuff also, I don't really have much to say about it other than just I really like the bit that just says the section that just says decide on the story as you write it. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a Rocky. <laughs> so I mentioned two, I mentioned two things. I mentioned mm-hmm. I ran a small experiment earlier today yeah. and that I own a collected volume that in- contains Millionaire's Village. Yeah. What I also have is access to a person who has next to zero familiarity with Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. In oh, my home. man. Yeah. So so I asked my my lovely, wonderful marathon finisher wife, Elena. Yeah. <laughs> We've had hey. a big fall over at our house. Yeah. Uh, uh, to, to read just like the first 10 or dozen pages of Millionaire's Village mm-hmm. and, and see what she thought. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, this is the first uh, uh, manga she's ever read in her life. Oh, no. <laughs> which means there was a big hurdle in, okay, which panel is next? Which right. word bubble in the panel is next? Because the, like, ZT junction thing, beyond being left to right, is different in yep. uh, American to, to Japanese comics. But yeah. beyond that, a lot of what Araki talks about he was trying to do and illustrating with, like, I mean, Millionaire Village was written somewhere in the 2010s this this is yeah. not one of his novice works mm. but but with these techniques that he's developed and describes he got it like yeah she was not a fan of kyoka in the early pages like why did <laughs> why didn't she just come clean about what she wanted why didn't she just speak directly <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yes yeah that that bit where she's just like that's a good idea rohan how about this instead <laughs> yeah or or like oh, her her thoughts on Rohan being like he's definitely committed to his career. Everything revolves around his work. He's mm-hmm. kind of a fucking weirdo. I do not like him. Like yeah, you're not. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to love how much you hate Rohan. Like yeah, this works. This works. Yep. Oh, that's a fun experiment. But also, we didn't talk about the cover design because the first thing when I'm no before she even started, she uh, uh she looked at the the reproduction of the one shots cover and was like. Why is he covered in baby birds? <laughs> yes, yes. Am I going to find out why he's got all these little baby duckies <laughs> around him? Yeah. Oh, I love that cover. And regular listeners will be familiar with the content of the story, Millionaire Village, and will know mm-hmm. that at no point is <laughs> Rohan Kashibe in front of a waterfall surrounded by baby duckies. No. <laughs> But this was a, a composition that he came up with after the story. Mm-hmm. I think it might have even been the last thing he drew in it Yeah, to uh, illustrate that Rohan is going to contend with the forces of nature. Yeah. And to make readers ask, why has Rohan got a bunch of baby duckies? I got to <laughs> get to page one, the all important page one that will pull me through. Yeah, there there's a thing that comes up a couple times where when Rocky's talking about like how to get people interested and hooked within the first panel or even or the first page. And one of those things that seems very consistent and seems to work for him is you just want to get the reader to ask, what the hell is that guy doing? <laughs> like that's like verbatim what he writes. It's like, what the hell is that guy doing? What's he it, up it to? It goes all the way back to that Western. Who shot this guy? Why yeah, is he dying? Sh- <laughs> Why is he dying? Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm really glad that Millionaire Village got picked out for this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just for, you know, it being a short story where it's a lot easier to kind of go through the whole thing start to finish. But also I think Millionaire's Village is just one of those stories that's where it's nice to learn like what the inspiration for that that came from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because Millionaire Village is one of the ones where it's just like, man, that's a weird one. And it's just like, no idea where that idea came from. And just like learning like the logic behind it and stuff, I think is one, really helpful to show like where ideas can come from. Just overhearing one conversation leads to this whole thing. Uh, and also... I don't know. It just gives you a little bit more appreciation for the story. For <laughs> just just learning the the origin of its inspiration there. But yeah, after after kind of like that breakdown of Millionaire Village, we get the the conclusion here. The conclusion, uh, three simple pages that that basically sum up to hey, the the Golden Way, the mm-hmm. the Royal Road. This, this is a map, but you're meant to follow it to uncharted territory. Yeah, and one of the things I really like here which I was hoping you was saying while I was reading this whole thing is um, let's see if I can, uh, I can find it here. Uh, but it's basically him just saying, okay, now that you've read this entire book, don't do what I did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, do what I say, not what I do. Cause like what worked for me probably won't work the exact same way for anyone else. And like, I find value in this. I really wish I could have found stuff like this for me specifically for, you know, my actual career path now, which is, which is, you know, in video, there's a lot of times where I didn't really want advice on what to do. I just mm-hmm. wanted to see how it worked for someone else. <laughs> like I just wanted the curtain pulled back to see how did this person do this? How did they get here? And like, what was that like? Because sometimes just seeing someone else's experience is more valuable than being told how to do a thing. And that's kind of more what this book is in in certain parts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's that's it. That's the yeah. end. Uh, I'm going to quit this show and become a, uh, <laughs> a incredibly successful mangaka. Yay. Uh, <laughs> uh, All I have to do is go back in time and spend my childhood and teenage years teaching myself to draw. Mm-hmm. I got the rest of it. I got, I, I oh, think yeah. I got pretty good story sense. But <laughs> Yeah. This, what, this is like while reading this, though, was something that like, I don't know if I'll act upon it. But was some because like I've always had a very very small inkling of thinking like I kind of want to write stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Would it be fun mm-hmm. to write a story or do something story based? And this did kind of push me just a little bit into thinking more of like maybe I would like doing that. Yeah, yeah. Don't know if I'll act upon it, but it certainly is a nice inspiration for sure. But yeah, I I I did enjoy reading this. I'm really happy for the two examples at the end too, as like little case studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it inspiring. I I think the thing that I found the most value in actually was the um like learning about the the type of story structure he uses and then some of the stuff in the art chapter actually. Yeah. Um like the stuff that wasn't specifically like the actual like drawing techniques, more just the, you know, making the invisible visible and stuff like that. I really liked actually and will that'll probably be in my head for the rest of my life. <laughs> Whoa, man. It reminds that s- section alone reminds me of one of my favorite parts of uh, "Keep Your Hands Off Isaacin." Oh yeah, when the one girl talks about how she she loves to be an animator, she loves to to draw and animate because she can be an actor for the wind and the sea and yeah. the, the weather as well as all the people and animals and creatures. Yeah. 
that's it's a good it's a good speech it's a good monologue Mm -hmm. on a really good show yeah for for anyone listening to this who does not know the show or has not watched it highly recommend hands off azakin for Mm -hmm. being uh, a very nice show about a bunch of like what middle school girls making anime becoming animators both for just being like a really cute show on top of also being one of my favorite genres of animation animation about animation (laughs) (laughs) whenever a show does that i'm like yes and i mean you want to talk about making the invisible visible the the bit where they go inside a waveform to talk about sound design and oh yeah that bit rules that bit's great highly recommend that show it's only like what 12 episodes at most Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. something like that yeah but yeah that is manga and theory and practice the craft of uh crafting manga Mm -hmm. or creating manga rather some have been meaning to read for i don't know seven years and that means our hiatus is over if you haven't Mm -hmm. figured it out over the last couple hours (laughs) yeah it's uh part six Next week, we're back talking about part six's first three episodes, episodes one through three, Stone Ocean, Stone Free, and The Visitor One. Mm-hmm. Can you believe, can you believe it took a year to put out all of uh, uh, Stone Ocean, that the third drop is coming on the first anniversary of the first drop? Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. realize. Yeah. It's it's just is interesting just because the the amount of time between the first and second drop was so long and the Nine time between months. Yeah, and the time between two and three is super the other short. Three. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they just that huge nine month gap was just them animating almost the entirety of the rest of the show before uh, doing another drop. I'm, I don't I'm know. sure a lot of people who did it are are working on the new uh uh Ursa Yatsura. Good luck to them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's David Productions' current thing. Right, yeah. Yeah, very excited to get to part six. The first JoJo I don't know the entirety of, though I know a lot of it, just through osmosis. Of, well, you got of you got to, like, not only do you have to watch the next three episodes to talk about on the show, you have to watch the entirety of yep. the season, Yep. or else, what what are we doing here? What The, the whole premise <laughs> exactly. of the thing is yeah. you know what's coming. Yep, I got to I gotta get... Like, I know the... the the bullet points, really. But yeah, I, I do need to watch the rest of it. We've, we've lost enough of the premise that I'm, I'm not a newcomer. Like, I figured <laughs> out the rhythms and, and yep. the, the language. Oh, yeah. I, I read the, like, source text here. Like, I know what JoJo's <laughs> is. I'm not, I'm not the man I was uh, yep. uh, back in part one, part two days. I don't think you'll ever be shocked as much by a squirrel biting its way through a Nazi ever again. <laughs> so... <laughs> we gotta have at least you hold on to your thing because i lost mine somewhere in the yep. process yeah got it gotta get on that maybe that's what i'll do today after this <laughs> but again uh keeping it simple episodes one through three coming at you next week mm-hmm. uh so yeah speaking of like uh, uh the drop the, the plan is the plan is for this episode you're hearing hello hi glad you joined us to come out just a few days before that final stretch the the final i think it's 14 or 15 in in the the third part yeah uh, i go go live to the world and that means we're going to be talking about part six next week just after all of part six is available mm-hmm. to the world that's that's the timing that's the plan and then after part six we'll officially like be out <laughs> there won't be any pending jojo anime left they took a year to animate it. 
there yeah. might be a, an announcement waiting in the spring. You can't say oh, that God. for sure. You know, that's true. They did actually already file trademarks like a year ago for part seven. Generally, when they file a trademark for that, means there is an anime coming. So who knows? We'll see. But yeah, until then, see you later. Good night. Nope, that's the other show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To be continued. <laughs>